Hello, this is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, and with me is my co-host and RDI's Chairman, Gary Kasparov. We're joined today by Tom Tugendhat, a member of the British Parliament and Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also a Lieutenant Colonel in the Territorial Army and has served in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as having been the Principal Advisor to the Chief of the Defense Staff, i.e. the Professional Head of the British Armed Services. Thank you, Tom, for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be with you both. So, Russia's war in Ukraine has now been going on for 56 days. And over the past two weeks or so, I've been saying that there have been roughly three phases to the war from the point of view of the international community. In the first, there was the part where much of the world thought that Kyiv would fall in 96 hours. In the second, we realized that they would actually fight, but ultimately still believed that inevitably it would become an insurgency. And third, there was a realization that Ukraine could actually win militarily. Tom, does that roughly jive with how you see the conflict? Yes, it does. I mean, I think a lot of people forgot at the beginning that freedom is a very, very powerful force. And when you see individuals like the extraordinarily courageous fighters in Ukraine about to lose their liberty to a brutal dictatorship, they fight hard. And they did fight hard. And in doing so, what they did is they demonstrated to the rest of us, I think extremely clearly, what's really at stake. And I think that's been an extremely important lesson for us all. So military support for Ukraine has roughly aligned with each of those phases, right? In the first, when they thought that Kiev would fall in 96 hours, many countries didn't really seem particularly keen to give weapons to Ukraine since they thought they'd be bulldozed by Russia anyway. In the second phase, we proceeded to start giving significant amounts of weapons, but most of these were lighter weapons, right, that could be used both by a regular army and an insurgency. And it's really only recently that we finally started sending heavy weaponry. Each time, it seems like we've sort of been one step behind. Look, I think that's a fair reading of it. I mean, I was in Kiev just before the war started in the middle of February, and I went and I took the Foreign Affairs Committee out there because I thought it was important that we should see exactly what's going on and what help they need. And one of the things that was particularly striking as I spoke to senior ministers, military officials, and various civil actors, including many members of the Ukrainian parliament, was the need to get support in early and fast. And one of the things we took back to the UK is the absolute essential element of getting in those immediate protective weapons, things like the NLAWS, as you know, the next generation light anti-tank weapons. And I'm very pleased that Ben Wallace, our defense secretary, was very quick in getting that in. Because I think when you talk about those three phases, you're right. But I think what you've also got to recognize is the first phase would never have got to the second phase if the UK and others hadn't got weapons in really early to make sure that Kiev didn't fall in the three days that you speak about. So let's look at what's going on on the ground right now. Can you describe sort of the status quo for us? Sure. I think we can safely say that the Russian Federation was roundly beaten in the north around Kiev, that it fought itself into a stalemate and was forced to withdraw. 
after some extremely poor logistics, some extremely poor command and control, led to what can only be described as the destruction of a serious army in the north. What has happened since then, apart from the various internal machinations that Gary's much more capable of describing than I am, of various generals who've been fired, the intelligence officers arrested, and various other sort of things that dictatorships do when they're seen to fail, which is blame others. We've seen the army centering now on the south, on the areas of Donetsk and Luhansk, seeking to advance its position on Mariupol, which, as we know, has held out with extraordinary courage, reminding me very much of the siege of Leningrad, actually, rather than anything else and has been a phenomenal example to the world. And now what we're seeing is the Russian forces trying to have a single front, which appears to be intended to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea and to go as far as Odessa. And that's where we seem to be today. Tom, you talked about Putin blaming his generals and intelligent officers for failures. And we understand, you know, what's happened there. It's uh, both incompetence, corruption, and of course, their desire to please the dictator, just giving them the information he wanted to hear. So that's typical for a non-democratic government. But how do you explain failures, almost an equivalent in failures on our side? How come that American intelligence, you know, we heard it from the CIA director and from the chairman of Joint Chief of Staff, General Milley, basically same evaluations of the outcome of the war, which I believe influenced decision makers like President Biden. It's very difficult to be bullish when you hear your top officers, both from Pentagon and CIA, telling you that Ukraine was doomed from day one. I mean, Gary, I think it's a fair question. There has been successes on our side. I mean, I think the intelligence picture that we assembled of the likely actions, the Putin's war effort that uh, we got before the 24th of February, before the invasion, was extremely effective, right? I mean, we were able to release and undercut his false flag operations. We were able to reveal what he was intending right from the beginning. And indeed, many months before the beginning, something that many other countries doubted, but we were absolutely right, as you know. But what we got wrong, and I think this is an entirely fair point, we underestimated, or rather our military and civilian officials underestimated the strength and character of Ukraine. And I have to say, when I came back from Kiev, I went to see some colleagues, former colleagues, sorry, forgive me, I've left the army now, but former colleagues. Um, in the, uh, yes, you can check out anytime you want to, you can never leave. I went to see some former colleagues and said that I'd been to a few places in, in Ukraine, not least in Kiev, and, and had seen these extraordinary arms dumps, arms caches that were ready for the territorial defense forces to pick up, you know, should the Russians cross the border. And I said, look, I haven't done much analysis of this. You guys have got the defense intelligence services. You guys have got the satellite pictures. But I'm not sure the Ukrainians won't fight till the last man. And if they do, I'm not sure they're going to lose. And I was told, no, 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 you've got to remember, you know, actually the Russians are very much better equipped. Actually, the Russians have got all these capabilities. Actually, the Russians, you know, look at what they can do. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure you're right, because these guys are serious. And forgive me, but having fought in urban conflict in Iraq and having fought against insurgencies in Afghanistan, I can tell you, if the defenders are really serious, it's really hard, even if you've got a seriously professional armed forces like ours. And as you rightly pointed out, Gary, the fundamental flaws in the Russian armed forces are to do with corruption that starts at the top, 
which means that even his intelligence services, even his elite units, have been so stripped out by everybody taking 10% of the weapons order, everybody taking 10% of the fuel order, and so on, that the guys at the bottom, the guys who are supposed to do the fighting, have got no intelligence, no equipment, and the stuff they've got is broken anyway. So we're not dealing with the same as the US or French or UK armed forces. We're dealing with a very broken organization and up against some very, very serious people who know what their liberty means and who know what oppression means, I think we've seen a very different result. Has Russia learned the right lessons from their failure in the North, from their failure in taking Kiev? No. I mean, fundamentally, no. They've just recruited a ton of conscripts. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you raising reserves is a difficult thing to do when we raise reserves This is people who've been trained regularly every year for a couple of weeks, who turn up for weekends, who are therefore on call. Even getting people like that who are committed, who are serious, ready for combat, takes another month or two at the very least, and actually often a bit longer than that, to get them really up to speed to make sure they're ready for combat. Russia is basically rounding up the halt and the lame, the old and the young, from the streets of towns and villages across the great country of the Russian Federation and sending them into a meat grinder. I mean, you know, the first victims of the Putin regime are the Russian people. So from a military point of view, what will make this phase of the war in the eastern part of Ukraine different from when Russia was trying to take Kiev? Well, the first thing that will make a difference is they've got a single focus, right? They've got a single general, a single focus, and so they think that they've got a single arc of advance. But the failures they've still got are the same failures they've had before. Look, I don't know who's supplying fuel to the Russian armed forces, but I can tell you somebody's stealing off it and watering it down. I don't know who's storing the tires. I can tell you they're not doing it properly because those tires are bursting a hell of a lot more than ours would. I don't know who's maintaining their vehicles because those vehicles are breaking down a lot more frequently than ours would. All of this tells me that there is serious failures in that logistical chain, and most of it is down to corruption. It also tells me that these guys are not very good at this because they have now crossed an extremely marshy area in vehicles that are not designed for it, and they're going to get pinned down and absolutely brutalized by the modern weaponry that we're supplying the Ukrainians. Now, you know, all I can say is bold move, because javelins and laws are not affected by marsh. Tanks and armored personnel carriers are. But now we're talking about this main theater of this war, moving from the north, which is forestry, it's a very different landscape, to Donbass steppe. And that's where tanks, I believe that's what Russians think now, uh, Russian generals, would give them a much better chance to fight a Ukrainian army that is not yet equipped with a long-range artillery. I know it's on the way, and my question will be, how soon this equipment, long-range artillery, the missiles, could be supplied to Ukrainians that are fighting there because javelins and the British anti-tank missiles, they worked extremely well in the north, you know, from ambushes. They could work from the ruins of the buildings in urban areas. But in open space, they are not going to have the same effect. So how soon Ukrainians could receive sophisticated weapons to repel Russian attacks and eventually to start advancing? Even taking a step back on that, what do you think they need in this next phase of the war in the East? And to Gary's point, will they get that? And if so, when? So look, I think what the Ukrainians need now is they need, as Gary quite rightly puts it, long-range artillery. They need artillery locating radar. They need the drones that can target sites further away. 
But they also need, they still need the Enlaws and the Javelins to make sure that they destroy those vehicles that come at them. Because, you know, Gary, you're absolutely right. The steppes of the south are certainly more conducive to tank movements than the forests of the north. But that's only true in the winter and the summer when the ground is either frozen hard or dried hard. Right now, it's not hard. It's very, very wet. And only a general who's been forced into it by a commander, a president, who doesn't understand what he's doing, as Putin doesn't, would be forcing armoured columns into the mud of Donetsk and Luhansk right now. It's a daft idea, and it's going to result in very serious casualties for the Russian forces. It's going to massively slow down their advance, and it's going to make them more sitting targets for our javelins and laws. So, you know, it's a very, very unwise military decision by Russia. And my impression is it can only have been made because Putin doesn't trust his generals and is effectively throwing everybody into the meat grinder. And so what we need to do now is make sure that the Ukrainians can resist that assault, but also that they can strike back more deeply into Russian logistical positions. And that's why we need the drones and the long-range artillery and indeed the artillery locating radar to knock out theirs. In the last few days, we heard some troubling reports that Ukrainians were getting low on ammunition. And also there were some warning signs from NATO that European NATO allies also running low on supply, which, again, doesn't surprise me since they have not been spending adequate amount of money on defense for years and years, Germany on top of this bottom list. So do you think that Europe can compensate quickly so it's just that Ukrainians will not run out of ammunition at the most critical point of the war? Well, look, I can tell you, having served in combat, that when asked how much ammunition you need, the answer is always more. So it's certainly not unusual that forces are asking for more ammunition. And one of the issues the Ukrainian armed forces have difficulty with, for very obvious reasons, is moving ammunition around the country to make sure it's in the right place. And a lot of this ammunition, a lot of the equipment that we're supplying is not stuff they're used to. So they're not automatically thinking that the sighting system needs to be connected to the missile and so on, because it's not ammunition, it's not equipment that they've been used to before, and their logistical chain isn't used to it. So I think we do need to help them with that. But I think the main question you're asking, which is entirely valid, is what about Western, to use the loose expression, what about European and US weapons stockpiles? And this is an issue, frankly, that has been a question for many of us for many, many years. Which is the reality is that our armed forces have very often bought exquisite kits, you know, large ships, more, you know, armor, things that you can point at if you're a politician, if you like, rather than the things that we absolutely do need, which is the stockpiles that mean that if you go to war, you have enough. Now, this isn't new. You'll remember from your history books the stories of the shell shortage in the First World War, where we fired more shells in a week than we expected to fire in a year. This isn't particularly unusual. This does happen quite a lot. But what we need to do now is ramp up production to make sure that we do not leave these people who are quite literally fighting on the front line of freedom high and dry when they could be defending us all. We very often use that phrase, front line of freedom here. That's actually the name of one of RDI's flagship programs. But Gary, I couldn't help but basically hear the shot in Freud in your voice as you were reacting to the challenges facing the Russian army that result from, you know, decades of corruption and rot and all of that. So I wonder if you can offer a little bit more insight into what you think is happening on the Russian side of this equation. I don't think I can add much to what Tom said a few minutes ago about the state of Russian army. And that's why I was surprised, even shocked by wrong evaluations by professionals on both sides of the Atlantic. Because army is part of a society. 
And if country and the governing system is corrupt, it's endemic corruption, it's widespread. I always said it's corruption in Russia is not a problem, but the system. Then you should expect that the army generals, those in charge of this overblown military budget, overblown by Russian standards, they will have their piece of pie. And military budget offered the best opportunity for enriching, for stealing, because so many articles are secret. So when you look at the work by Alexei Navalny and his foundation had been disclosing the corruption of Russian officials, you could find almost nothing about militaries for a simple reason. It's the most of the articles were secret. But judging from what Alexei Navalny revealed, you can make projection to the army. And that's why I'm not surprised by the fact that the logistical supply was meager. They run out of a few food very, very quickly. And the equipment they've been using, it's also not sophisticated. We heard so many stories from Putin himself about new great weapons. For instance, the new tank, Armata. They had Armata, I think it's a few samples that they built on military parades in Moscow. I didn't see any Armata in Ukraine. So it's what to be expected. And also, it's about the quality of soldiers. Most of them come not from urban areas, but from countryside. They're poor. Either they are conscripts, or they sign contract with the army to pay, you know, for their parents. This is not an army that you can use to accomplish great geopolitical goals that Putin had in mind. There's so many comparisons between Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and German invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's when you talk about the methods and brutality and atrocities, yes, Putin's army, you know, acts like fascists. But the good news for us, it's not Wehrmacht. This army is fairly weak. And the myth about the second strongest army in the world turned to be another Potomkin village. That's, again, we know that corruption in Russia has a long history. But with Putin, it reached a new high. And I think it tells you about the rotten mechanism of Putin's governing system. Tom, is your sense that Russia sent sort of outdated, older, shoddier equipment into Ukraine because that's all it had or because it was holding the more advanced weaponry in reserve? Russian's armed forces is shy of a million. So I don't know whether it's eight, 900,000, something like that, people. They sent in 190,000. None of them seem to be equipped with the latest equipment, which tells me that they don't have it because you don't send in a fifth of your armed forces with none of your latest kit unless it's because you don't have it or it doesn't work. So you may have one or two examples of it, as Gary says, that you can drive down on the May Day Parade. But driving down the street on May Day Parade and going into battle are two very, very different things. And, you know, having one or two tanks that work and having an entire regiment that works, again, it's a very, very different thing. And the real striking element of all of this is quite how bad the Russian forces have been. Now, this has been a, a real shock, I think, to many of us. But it has been a real revelation of the level of corruption in the system, as Gary quite rightly puts it. Never forget that the army is just another branch of government. And if the government is corrupt, then so is the driver's office, so is the healthcare system, so is the military system. They all are. And by the way, so is the intelligence system. It's quite clear that however much the KGB, I'm so sorry, the FSB spent on spying on Ukraine, the reality is that plenty of those FSB officers pocketed lots of it. Let's take a little bit of a step back. We focused a lot on tactics. Let's think a little bit more on a strategic level. What does a Ukrainian victory look like? 
Well, I think a Ukrainian victory is whatever the Ukrainian people choose. It's up to them to define the level of territorial reconquest they wish to achieve. And people have spoken about Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk. They've spoken about the different areas where uh, deals could be done if they want to. But it's not for me to have those conversations. I think it's up to the Ukrainian people and what they've demonstrated, and I think President Zelensky has demonstrated, is they have the courage and capability to deliver what they need to. I think from our perspective, what Ukrainian victory needs to look like is a very, very clear lesson to Putin and to the Russian people and the Russian military, that they do not have the capability to achieve militarily the level of oppression of other countries and other peoples that they have discussed for the last 10, 15 years. That's what victory looks like for us. It looks like Putin's failure and the realization that the Russian military is not up to it. Let me expand a bit on this territory. I couldn't agree more that it's for Ukrainians to decide where they have to stop because every move towards recovering the territories will cost them lives. And they have to decide whether it's worse or not. And like Putin, President Zelensky and Ukrainian leadership, they value every human life. We know that as a democratically elected government, of course. But still from our side, when I say our side, from NATO, from European Union, from the United States, we could be more specific about what we believe should happen because we also need to define the strategic goal. It doesn't mean Ukrainians agree with that, but I think it will help if we show our determination to help Ukraine win. And for me, Ukrainian victory is not just a demolition of Putin's armies, but full recovery of territorial sovereignty. It's for Ukraine to be whole and free. Now, that means they will have to recover Crimea. I think they will recover Donbass. That's easier strategically and and tactically. Crimea is more complicated for many reasons. You know, from geography, it's a very narrow pass to Crimea, plus demographically. But Crimea is a part of Putin's aggression against Ukraine. It had been invaded, annexed, and uh, there was an ethnical cleansing that removed most of Crimean Tatars and also Ukrainians. So that's making the peninsula almost you know, exclusively Russian territory. And the free world, not only its active supplying Ukrainians with weapons, but also imposed severe sanctions on Russia. And do you think that we need to tie these things together, declaring that the goal of this war is for Ukraine to win, territorial sovereignty to be restored, reparations to be paid, it's still it's a big, big issue, and uh, war criminals to be punished. And until this day comes, the sanctions on Russia will not be lifted. So look, I think Gary's highlighted some very good points there. In fact, I'm going to raise one, and I'm not, forgive me, I'm not a Russian lawyer, I'm not even a Russian speaker, but Gary will know that under the Russian Criminal Code, Article 353, the crime of waging an illegal war, which was, of course, the Nuremberg charge brought against the then Nazi government, was brought into the Russian Civil Code, or rather, sorry, to the Soviet Civil Code, and then inherited by the Russian Civil Code. It still is on the Russian law books. So this isn't a foreign law imposed on the Russian people. This is Russian law being used against a Russian dictator. I think that this is something that I I would very much hope that when Russia is free, it will look to use its own very long-standing legal traditions to bring prosecutions against those who have waged illegal war and under Article 354, those who have conducted media operations in support of them. But can we make whatever it takes to bring these days closer? Because for us to be free, so we need sound military defeat in Ukraine. 
and socioeconomic revolt. And those things depend on the determination of the free world to fight alongside Ukraine for this global victory. As we all agree, Ukraine is on the front line of the war between freedom and tyranny. And this war most likely will not end in Ukraine. So it will continue in the, throughout the 21st century. But right now we need to win and winning the war and toppling Putin's regime through military defeat and social economic revolt. For me, that's not just a noble goal, but it's just what is the best outcome to make sure that this lives, and we're talking about tens of thousands, I'm afraid the final cost will be hundreds of thousands of civilian lives lost in Ukraine, not to be lost in vain. Look, Gary, I mean, you and I have been friends for more than a decade and have spoken about this for, well, an awfully long time. And as you know, I started my work as chairing this committee calling out Russian corruption in the UK and the influence of Putin's agents, public and private, in and around Europe and the United States. This is something that's very close to both of our hearts. But I think there's two elements to it. The first is, where does sanctions stop? And I think you're right. They don't have to stop with the liberation of Ukraine. They have to stop with the defense of Europe. Because while I am absolutely committed to the protection of the Ukrainian people, let me be quite clear why that is. I am a British politician. I represent a community in Kent. And my interest, and I'm afraid my very clear primary interest, is the defense and prosperity of the British people. It, that has to be it, right? That is literally my job. I don't think that's possible without, you know, the defense and prosperity of the people of the United States and France and Germany and many other countries and Australia and Japan and so on, nor indeed without the protection of Ukraine. These things are all connected. So I do think these things are absolutely fundamental. But when it gets to the stage of Russia, that's something I don't have a voice in, but you do. And incredibly courageous people like Vladimir Karamurza do and people like Alexei Navalny do. And our job has to be to support Russian voices who are trying to make a difference. And that is, I think, where media work comes in, where support to civil organizations comes in, where closing down Putin's propaganda arms and nefarious actions overseas come in. I know that you have been under very often under severe pressure by the Russian regime, and others have been too. So I think there's an awful lot we've got to do. But the main change will come in Russia when Russian leaders, and there are already some very courageous Russian leaders, are able to make that change. With our support, sure but it's got to be Russian-led. Going back a little bit to the first condition that Gary sort of set out for some kind of change in Russia, which is some form of significant military defeat in Ukraine, right? And Tom, I think you very rightly pointed out that ultimately what that looks like is going to be up to the Ukrainian people, right? It's not up to us, you know, in our respective homes in New York and London and so forth to be making that decision for them. And I think that President Zelensky has been quite clear that the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people, because unlike the Russian government, the Ukrainian government actually represents the Ukrainian people, will not accept an end to this conflict without some element of restoring Ukrainian territorial sovereignty. And so this brings me to sort of two key questions, right? The first is, to what extent is that realistic, right? I mean, Gary pointed out that Donbass is highly realistic, Crimea more open-ended, and you noted that as well. One, what's your sense of, per what President Zelensky has said, how realistic are those territorial goals? And then number two, what does the free world have yet to do in order to empower Ukraine 
to come to that conclusion of that war on their terms rather than on Putin's terms. I think Gary's already highlighted some of those elements. You know, we've gone from providing defensive weapons to providing those areas, that, that sort of weaponry that allows them to retake their country. I'd still argue that the defensive weapons, because it's about defending Ukrainian territory, it's not about invading anybody else, but it does mean a different form of armament. And we're getting there and slower than I think Gary and I would like. And, you know, I've spoken to our government extremely clearly about this. I know you've done the same with many other people as well, Gary, but, you know, we're getting there. And I think that's the first thing. The second thing that we've got to do is we've got to look at the Ukrainian government and people and say, what more help do you need? Because talking about just armament is only talking about part of the issue. We need to be talking about rebuilding, helping to rebuild the Ukrainian economy. We need to be talking about helping to support Ukrainian civil infrastructure. We need to be talking about not just healthcare inside, but support to refugees outside. You know, when we talk about the moral component of fighting, part of it is the fact that people are genuinely fighting for their lives and their homes. That's true. But part of it has to be the knowledge that they have, that they are fighting for their families and that their families are safe in Poland and Germany and the United Kingdom and many other places, and that they, if they are injured, will be looked after and cared for. I think that's essential. Tom, you talked about the interests of British people you represent, and I couldn't agree more, so that's your prime responsibility. And I wanted to ask your opinion. Again, it's just opinion because we know it, it may take a long time and it's, it's quite challenging. But we have now hundreds of billions of dollars of frozen assets of Russian government and Russian oligarchs. Well, it's the same thing, really, Gary. Okay, now <laughs> same things for us. I'm not sure it's the same for British law. That's true. That's exactly where I'm heading to now. Yeah. So we all know it's money all connected to Putin, but the law, because we're still talking about the legal system to deal with these issues. Because my question, of course, I'm sure Ukrainians are very interested, but you Russians who live in exile and believe that one day we can come back. We also want to understand, so whether these assets can be, quote-unquote, confiscated on the basis of genocide and crimes committed in Ukraine to be moved to Ukraine to restore the country that was plummeted and demolished by Russian troops. I believe it's important for Russians as well because we know one day we have to pay. We have to pay, and it's, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in reparation. So I understand that it's a gray area. It's not the area that law can cover, existing law. But we can also look at the Nürburgring Tribunal. We can look at other precedents where genocidal crimes have been involved, and it led to some, call it, paralegal decisions. But again, how realistic is it for Western governments to not just to look at this direction, but actually to start acting and whether the, the law of Great Britain, European Union or the United States could be sympathetic towards such drastic measures? Well, look, I think this is a really important question because as you and I both know, Gary, there's no such thing as an oligarch. There's only people who work as oligarchs yeah. holding Putin's money and using it for the purpose of furthering the aims of the Putin regime. Obviously, that's a slight joke, but it's not entirely a joke. And there are a few, however, people who have genuinely made a lot of money, done well, and who are originally Russian or Ukrainian citizens. So we've got to be careful that we're not lumping everybody into a single box. There isn't a single box. There are plenty of law-abiding, honorable Russian citizens who live and work 
perfectly ethically and honorably in our in our community. Gary, I'm looking at one right now, and who have uh, to be clear that was Gary, not me. <laughs> yeah, to be clear that was Gary. The, um, so we've got to be careful we don't do a blanket punishment. We are a state based on the rule of law. That's what protects us all. So I think that's important. But I think you're absolutely right that one of the things we do need to look at is when the yachts are seized around the world, and we know that they're held by either Putin himself, one or two of them are, or indeed held by Russian oligarchs who are actually merely uh, placemen of the Putin regime. We need to be quite clear that that money is, first of all, money stolen off the Russian people. It should be seized and held and returned to the Russian people as soon as possible. But some of that should be returned after the reparations have been paid that are necessary to the Ukrainian people. So I think we need to be looking quite seriously at how we look at legal influence and legal changes to recognize the reality of the situation, not the fiction that some have built. But just to have the final word on this very juicy topic, yachts, you know, and even the fortunes of many Putin's oligarchs, it's probably in tens of billions of dollars. But it's the 300 billion plus of Russian state frozen assets. So do you think it's realistic that this money will be seized and returned to Ukraine without going back to Russia? Because I, again, I would support any decision that will compensate Ukraine for the immense suffering of its people and destruction of their country. Well, look, I think it's something that's up to the political will of various countries. I mean, let's not forget that from the 40s all the way through to their liberation in the 90s, we held the gold of various countries around the world, including Estonia. And we didn't hand it over to the Soviet Union because we never recognized that the Soviet Union was the legal, lawful government of Estonia. So we held it in the Bank of England until Estonia was free. And the moment it was free, we gave them their gold back. It was theirs. And I think we should be looking at a similar system for money that has been stolen off the Russian people and is, as you rightly say, owed to the Ukrainians. So going back to the idea of support for Ukraine and political will in European countries and beyond, one of the things that I think has definitely caught Putin by surprise, but I also actually think it caught much of the West by surprise, was the speed with which NATO came together to respond to Putin's invasion. But even so, you know, we're seeing some cracks starting to show now. And you have the German chancellor, for example, who has thus far refused to send any heavy weaponry into Ukraine, despite pressure from within his own coalition. I wonder, what's your sense of it? Do you feel like there's other pressure on the German government that perhaps isn't being widely shared? Do you think this is just a strategic mistake or is there something that we're not seeing? Look, I think this is a very serious mistake. I've got to be, I've got to be frank with you. I think this is a very serious mistake because you have a choice where you fight your enemy. You either fight them on the boundaries of your alliance or you fight them at home. And one of the greatest luxuries that the UK has got, and this is something that the US doesn't always appreciate as being a continental power with an ocean on either side, is most of us are pretty up close to our neighbors. We're very, very confronted by those who put us at risk. And what the UK has done in order to achieve that strategic depth that the US enjoys is we've extended our borders east and south through alliance. You know, the border of freedom for the UK starts on the eastern border of Poland and Hungary, on the eastern border of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. That's where our freedom starts. And every time we undermine it, every time we salami slice the edges, we bring the threats closer to home and make them more real. And I think Germany's got to think really hard about this because if they like, the border can start a few miles east of Berlin or it can start several hundred miles east of Berlin. And they've got a choice to make. And I think standing with Ukraine 
frankly, is the only way that Germany achieves the strategic depth that keeps the German people safe and prosperous, and short-term deals. So I feel that the borders of freedom for UK and US must start on the eastern border of Ukraine. Yeah. Do you think that NATO made a mistake but not allowing Ukraine in in 2008? I look at Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, three countries that have, as you know, Russian-speaking populations and about which President Putin has spoken about protecting. I mean, he means protecting in the same way as a mafia don means about protecting, right? This is a protection racket, not real protection. He's spoken about protecting the Russian-speaking populations in those countries, but thank God, although he's tried to undermine them in various different ways, he hasn't actually attacked them. Why has he attacked Ukraine? Well, it's clear, because it's not part of NATO. It doesn't enjoy the same protection. Why has he attacked Georgia for the same reason? You know, he has fundamentally, he's attacked areas that he thinks are weak, and like a bully in the schoolyard, he's attacked those he thinks he can get away with. So, Tom and Gary, you know, both of you have really highlighted the extent to which the conflict in Ukraine is a global one, right? This isn't really just a geopolitical conflict between two states about their borders. I mean, it's really about much more than that. It's about the global battle between tyranny and democracy, which is what this whole podcast is about. And so, Tom, you know, we've talked a lot about the countries and individuals and organizations that are backing Ukraine and that are looking to defend the freedom of the Ukrainian people to make decisions about their own fate and nation. You know, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the countries and organizations that are backing Russia. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see that? Sure. There is no way that President Putin would have made the decision to redeploy thousands of troops from his eastern border to his western border unless he'd been given some form of assurance that the Chinese armed forces were not going to move in. There's no way. But what he's done now, extraordinarily, is he sought Chinese support, but actually he hasn't got Chinese support. He's made himself dependent on China. He's taken the worst geostrategic decision of any Russian leader ever. What he's done is he has made Russia a dependent vassal state of the emperor of China. This is something that czars and princes in Moscow have sought to resist for, you tell me, Gary, a thousand years? You know, it's been literally hundreds and hundreds of years that Russian princes in Moscow and Kiev have sought to maintain their independence from Tatars and from Mongols and from Chinese. And, you know, this is literally hundreds of years of Russian history. And what he's done is he's thrown it all away for a vanity project, for a vanity invasion of Ukraine. Now, I don't know how he's going to try and fill his coffers in the future, but I, my guess is that he's going to do what he's already started, which is to turn his gas fields so that they stop supplying us and they start supplying China. And that will only increase the dependency. And I just wait for the day when a leader in Beijing looks north and says to the Russian president, that gas in Siberia, it's not in Siberia anymore. It's now in northern Mongolia, and we're going to take it. Because he's left Russia incredibly weakened. He's destroyed what it always was, which is a bridge between East and West. He's destroyed the ability of the Russian people to have uh, a cooperative relationship with partners in the West. And in doing so, he's left the Russian people completely exposed to control by the Chinese Communist Party. Then let me finish this conversation because the, the China was mentioned. And as you lay groundwork for the biggest battle of the 21st century, where China would be the geostrategic fall of democracy worldwide. And the future of Russia will determine how successful we are in this fight. So whether Russia remains, as you just described vividly, 
a vassal state of China and will be part of the anti-democracy coalition, or Russia eventually, that's my dream, uh, will join the family of civilized nations and will be part of the global solution. So let's work on it. Well, I think Russia can be part of the solution. I mean, I, I really, I'm not defeatist about it. It has to be, as you rightly say, Gary. And let's be quite clear, Russia over the last three, four, five hundred years has given the world some of the world's greatest artists and scientists. It's even created some chess players. I don't know if you know of any. But it's, it's uh, you know, Russia has been a vital part of the growth of European civilization and culture and indeed global civilization and culture. And it's essential that Russia is liberated and the Russian people are liberated to come back. The alternative, I'm afraid, is bad for all of us, but particularly the first victims are the Russian people. I think this is such a perfect place to end on the fact that our conflict is not with the Russian people. It's not with the Russian nation. It is unfortunately with the Russian dictator. And it's he who needs to leave. And it is also he who places first and foremost the Russian people at greatest risk. And so with that, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Gary. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, which is brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host. Epstein. At RDI, we're committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.